Welcome to this University of Michigan Museum of Natural History podcast. On this episode, we're featuring a science cafe from February of 2017 about what ancient climates can tell us about climate change today. To find out about future science cafes, please visit umnh.org. Welcome to all. Uh, we've got a great group tonight, but we actually have a couple seats left, so I'm glad you're all here and we didn't have to turn anybody away. Um, my name's Amy Harris. I'm the director of the Museum of Natural History at the University of Michigan, and we're the organizers of this Science Cafe series, which is in its 10th year this year, and we're very proud of that. Tonight's um, Science Cafe is called Ancient Climates, Future Climates. What can the deep past tell us? And uh, so we're looking forward tonight to tonight's program, but first I'd like to invite you to join me in thanking Connor O'Neill's for making this space available to us. So on, on that note, I'm going to turn things over to Kira, who will uh, get us started. Thank you, Amy. Um, just a quick note, again, thanks to Connors uh, for making, uh, making it possible for us to be here today. And also thanks to you. And I notice our donation box is doing much better, so thank you very much. I'm cheering for the donation box, as I always do, except when we have science cafes that are sponsored. And next month's science cafe on epigenetics is sponsored by Sigma Xi, the Scientific Research Society. And I'm also working uh, with Teresa. Teresa, raise your hand. To get Science for the People, which is a wonder, wonderful organization that in, encourages scientists to be uh, advocates. Um, and Science for the People will be sponsoring um, October's Science Cafe. Uh, so thank you very much for helping to organize that. Um, so without further ado, I want to get into today's program. And um, I have two great guests, and um, they've been friends of the museum for a long time, so uh, I'm so happy that they could both make it. Um, Dr. Chris Poulsen um, is professor of climatology and chair of the Department of Earth and Environmental Sciences at the University of Michigan. And Chris leads an active research program that investigates climate change in the past, present, and future. His research uses both theoretical climate models and field observations to understand how the atmosphere, ocean, biosphere, and cryosphere respond to a changing climate. Chris has more than 80 publications on climate topics ranging from snowball earth and past ice ages to periods of extreme warmth and their cause. At Michigan, Chris teaches courses on both climate and environmental change. He's a fellow of the Alexander von Humboldt Foundation and the Geological Society of America and a recipient of the University of Michigan's John Dewey Award for Excellent in Teaching. Please welcome Dr. Chris Polson. And, and also, uh, we have Dr. Nathan Sheldon. He's an associate professor of Earth Systems Science and the associate director of the program in the environment at the University of Michigan. At U of M, uh, Nathan leads an active research group that works on past, present, and future climate change also, and on the impact of climatic change on the biosphere. Nathan's research group has published nearly 70 papers and used, are you guys competitive or anything? 
Oh, okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and uses field studies, geochemistry, and models to understand how terrestrial and shallow marine environments respond to atmospheric change. At U of M, Nathan teaches courses on paleoclimatology, isotope geochemistry, and environmental sciences. He's a fellow of the Geological Society of America and was awarded the Antarctic Service Medal of the United States and the James Lee Wilson Medal from the Society for Sedimentary Geology. Yay! Welcome, Nathan Sheldon. For those of you who may be a little bit unfamiliar with our um, format, uh, here's the way we're going to proceed. We're going to have two short presentations from each of our guests. Then we'll break, and you guys can talk to each other. And there are some resources on your tables as well. And there are some discussion questions on the table. It's a great time to refill your glasses, order more of whatever it was you needed, um, and take care of your wait staff. And then um, we'll come back together for the last third or so of our program uh, for a moderated group discussion. Okay, questions about format? All right, I'm going to turn this over to Chris to start us off. Well, thanks, Kira. I want to um, start by assuring you that um, nothing we talk about today will change your DNA. So <laughs> we'll get that out of the way. Um, I am a bit embarrassed because I've never been to a science cafe before. I think that's going to change after uh, seeing this. Um, but as a result of that, I clearly made figures that project very, very small. If I did this in a classroom, they'd kick me out. I would no longer be a, a faculty member at the University of Michigan. So I apologize for that, but I, I guess you do have them at your uh, tables. So I wanted to um, spend a little bit of time focusing on that first diagram in the upper uh, left-hand uh, corner of the, the figure, the one with the pretty um, colors that shows um, orange and going um, to blue. And so we'll talk about the, uh, the y-axis. The x-axis, so um, it runs, so the, the way the data runs from right to left starts at 100 million years ago. Actually, it's more than that. It's... Um, I think the data starts at about 110 million years ago and goes up to the present day. Okay, so you have to get your, your mind in the right place. We're talking about very, very long uh, timescale uh, changes, millions and millions of years. Well, the data points on this plot are um, the geochemical signals. They're called the isotopic composition of little shells. They're called benthic foraminifera. These are little organisms that uh, float or move along the sea floor. And then 110 million years ago. And then they died and were buried, and some geologists went along and uh, pulled them off uh, from, from a, a core and pulled those shells out and then analyzed it. And so what you see is literally thousands, probably tens of thousands of data points that where these organisms were around from 110 million years ago to the present. All of them have been snatched up by geologists and measured. What the signal is, so what's on the x-axis, is the, this geochemical signature. And if you want to know more about this geochemical signature, I'm, I'm happy to tell you about it. For right now, uh, because I think I'm going to run over uh, otherwise, I'm just going to say that what this signature tells us is the temperature of the ocean very broadly speaking, from 110 million years ago um, to the present. Okay, and so let me get a copy of this figure. 
And so um, what you can see is that over time, from 100 million years ago to the present, the, the temperature of the ocean has changed uh, on average over the entire ocean, relatively speaking, by about 12 degrees Celsius. Okay? This is a huge number because, again, it represents a a, an average uh, temperature of the entire ocean. Or actually, it's, it's the deep ocean. Okay, so it's not the same as a 12-degree temperature in Ann change in, t in Ann Arbor. We do that daily. Uh, this is the long-term average temperature of the ocean over hundreds of millions of years. Okay, so if we look at that time period at 100 million years ago, that's called the Cretaceous. During the Cretaceous, the temperatures were at least in the ocean 12 degrees warmer than they are today. Now, most of us don't really think in terms of global average temperature, so what I did is I, I also... Um, had added uh, two artist renditions of what Antarctica looked like and the Arctic looked like about 70 million years ago. So these aren't even in the peak uh, warm period of this, represented by this uh, plot. Okay? And so what you can see is that Antarctica had dense forests. It had dinosaurs. The Arctic also, and this, this is supposed to represent the Denali National Park. Has anyone been to Denali National Park? Okay, can you tell us what it's like? Anyone? It's beautiful, but it's also cold. It's full of mosquitoes, too. But, yeah, it's very, very um, a cold place. It's nothing like this uh, picture here uh, with lush forests. Um, it's also showing here um, some, some dinosaurs. I'm not a paleontologist, but these, I do know that these are duck-billed dinosaurs. And these are significant because they found juvenile dinosaurs, which indicate that these dinosaurs couldn't migrate um, over the course of a year, which meant that they had to live year-round at Denali National Park, which gives them some indication that the temperatures were much, much warmer and the habitat much, much different than it is today. Okay, so the point is that the Cretaceous, this time period at, uh, at peak warmth in the last 100 million years, was a considerably different world than today. No ice sheets on either of the poles, um, dense forests, uh, flora and fauna that are, resemble tropical flora and fauna uh, at the poles today. Okay, so if we can go back to that isotopic curve, uh, which is the previous one. Does this, will the slide uh, go back? Okay. Okay, so we went from that peak temperature 100 million years ago to modern temperatures today. And of course, we have two poles that are uh, covered with ice. So as a paleoclimatologist and a paleoclimate modeler, what my interest is in understanding what drove that long-term change. How did we go from a world that was completely different to the one that we um, know um, today? And so um, to do that, I use climate models. So these, the same types of climate models that are used to uh, predict uh, temperatures for the future. And so we, t we take these climate models and we incorporate what we know about the Cretaceous in order to predict the temperatures of the past because we want to know what caused those really, really warm uh, temperatures. Okay. Um, I got a little bit off of track. So if we think about what caused that cooling from 100 million years ago to the present, there aren't that many um, choices that we have. So, so what ha what? Ha who can tell me what happened in the last 100 million years that might have caused a temperature change? Any ideas? Yeah. So CO2. So 
There's the punchline right there. Um, so a couple of different things uh, happened. One thing is the, the, the brightness of the sun changed. But actually, the sun has gotten brighter through time. So if anything, that would cause the temperatures to get warmer. So that wasn't the cause. The other thing that happened is the continents moved around from uh, plate tectonics. And we can put those changes in the models, and what we see is that those changes cannot explain this uh, cooling event. But then we take carbon dioxide, and we use estimates that we get from geological uh, proxies, from uh, our best geological estimates, and we put those values in our climate models, and we run these um, simulations for these different time periods, and what we find is that we can get pretty darn close to simulating those very, very warm uh, climates. We're, the models are by no way perfect, and so part of the reason that we do this is because we have these models. We know that CO2 is increasing today. We want to know how the temperatures are going to be different in the future. Well, how, how, what do we have to, um, to validate those models? We know what the present-day climate is. We know that the models do a really, really good job with the, doing the present day, but they're also made to do a really, really good job with the present day. So then the question is, okay, we're going to change the models. We're going to increase the carbon dioxide concentrations. How do we know that the answer is correct? Well, one way to check and see if they're correct is to simulate past time periods with these models and then compare them to geological data where we think we have a fairly good idea about the climate in the past. And so essentially that's what I do and what my, my group does. Okay, I want to, um, how much time do I have? Atmospheric pressure, the entire um, mass of the atmosphere stays constant. The pressure at the surface, because you have storms coming through and, and things like that, does change. So circulation changes. And I can talk more about the models in just a second. Um, how much time do I have? Okay. I prepared way too much stuff. Um, Okay, I, I do want to say one more thing about this uh, long-term curve. So CO2 is the main driver of this, and we, we know that from proxies that show that carbon dioxide concentrations have decreased through time. We also know that because we take these models and we uh, use them to test past climates, and we can only get near uh, past climates if we put in these CO2, high CO2 um, concentrations. There is, at about... Um, in this plot, there, at about 55 million years, you have to look really closely, there's a little orange dot. Does everyone see that little orange dot? It's above um, the green and yellow dots. Can you see it? It's one little lonely dot. Okay, that is the Paleocene-Eocene thermal maximum. And I'm, I'm, I'm pointing this out because the changes that I've been talking about have been very, very slow. And so you might say... Well, these happen so over mi millions of years. You know, why, who, who cares? Why is it relevant? Well, the Paleocene-Eocene thermal maximum is an example where we had a very, very rapid climate change. It's thought that there was a warming of 5 to 8 degrees Celsius in about 4,000 years. And so that's used as an analog for what we are uh, witnessing um, today. Okay? So... A lot of work has been, do, been done on this Paleocene-Eocene thermal maximum to understand how quickly it happened and to, to know how much carbon dioxide was released. So at that point, there is a 5 to 8 degree warming. 
they saw that there is intense ocean acidification, so many organisms couldn't produce their shells, and so there are extinctions in the ocean because of ocean acidification. They also saw fauna and flora migrate poleward. So this was a very, very different world than the time period uh, preceding it. During that time, though, they, when there's this huge amount of carbon dioxide coming out, the rate at which it was coming out was 10 times slower than the rate at which carbon emissions are happening today. So even though the Paleocene-Eocene thermal maximum is our very, very best analog for uh, modern climate change, it comes nowhere close to the rate at which we are emitting uh, CO2 today. So paleoclimate can be a guide to us, but we are undergoing an experiment right now which has never been seen on the face of the Earth. And so to show that, I have this last plot down here that shows uncharted territory. And I'm sure most of you are familiar with this. This shows the carbon dioxide concentrations over the last several hundred thousand years. And these carbon dioxide concentrations were uh, analyzed from ice cores. Uh, so they're, they're trapped gases in ice. Until you get to the very, very end um, where, in which there are um, observations from Mauna Loa. And so what you see is that over the last 400,000 years... Uh, the CO2 wiggled back and forth. I can't even read this, but it was um, between about uh, 200 and 280 uh, ppm. And then over the last 100, 150 years, it's jumped and is now today at about 406 uh, ppm. Yeah, so he's asking about the source of the carbon dioxide historically. Uh, so the, the source during the last 400,000 years was essentially carbon dioxide being trapped in the ocean and on land and then being released during interglacial times. So there's this natural sink and source of the carbon dioxide. The source of the last 150 years, plants take up carbon and they're a sink for it, but they grow in, this, in the spring and then they die in the fall. And so if, actually, if you look at uh, the variations of carbon dioxide, you see this seasonal cycle, but there's no net uh, change unless there is another source, which is fossil fuel combustion and carbon emissions. We'll come back to, we can come back to that point, but the point I want to make with the graph is that today we are at 406 ppm parts per million carbon dioxide, we haven't seen levels that high for millions of years. We have to go back to the Pliocene. So paleoclimate may seem like this obscure thing, but we're very, very quickly getting to levels that, are, that we haven't seen until we go back in the distance when the climates were much uh, different than they are uh, today. So I think I better stop there. I think I've gone over my time and give it to Nathan. Okay, so a lot of what Chris works on, a lot of the things that he's talking about are really physical, yeah, sorry, are, are physical processes. And so um, what I want to talk about and more of the kinds of things that my group works on are actually sort of what are the impacts of the changing climate. So it's one thing to record how the climate has changed, but it's another to actually try to understand what, um, what that really does to things. So... Um, in any case, what we want to talk about then is what are sort of the actual impacts of climate. And the thing I want to start you out with is this. Um, what kind of plant is everybody drinking right now? Wheat. Some of you might be drinking corn. What do these things all have in common? Grains. The grains. And what kind of plants are grains? Monocots. Monocots, they're grasses. Exactly. 
So grasses evolved during a time when, when global climate was cold. They, they evolved, they really started spreading in earnest um, about 30 million years ago, when things were pretty cold, when there was ice at the poles, stuff like that. What's going to happen to those grasses as we continue to add, and, and when CO2 is about 250 parts per million? So what's, how, how are we going to adapt? Are we going to be able to drink beer in the future? And this sounds like a totally trite question, but before I came to the University of Michigan, um, I was at University of London in the UK. And one of the things that the British government wanted the paleoclimatologists and climatologists to comment on was how climate was going to shift, not just the mean state, something we'll come back to, but also the distribution of climate. And so in the end, the end I'll, I'll cut to the, um, to the chase here, the end product of all of this was an observation that the best place to grow wine in Europe is not going to be France anymore. It's going to shift across the English Channel to England. So they were very excited about this. Um, and you can all imagine... Um, you know, if you said to your friends, hey, I want to invest in English wine, they would look at you as though you had too much to drink already, right? Um, but, but the point I want to make from this is just that when we think about climate change in the future and we think about how it changed in the past, one of the critical things is there will be winners and losers. Um, we don't refer to climate change anymore as global warming. And the reason that this has changed is not because the, the planet as a whole isn't warming up. It's because it's not warming up the same rate at every place, different latitudes are disproportionately affected. And so one way that we can, we can look at how we think about climate, um, if I can have that first slide there, Kira. Um, yeah, so you know, what, is, what does temperature mean? What does mean annual temperature? What does mean annual precipitation actually mean? Here are three cities, um, one a dreaded place to the south of us, um, that actually have the same mean annual temperature. So the mean climate state in all of these places is exactly the same. I don't think any of you would mistake winter in Columbus, Ohio, for winter in Oregon, right? So the mean state of climate is something that is a meaningful thing to think about, but we're much more interested actually in, you know, will the distribution of the warm time of the year change? Will the distribution of when the water arrives change? You know, Michigan is a great place to grow crops, but if the rain, I mean, we can see today, we're sitting here in February, where's the snow, right? Historically, there would be snow at this time. There'd be snow into April, actually. And so all of that snow melt hit the rivers before we're starting to grow crops. So there's a different kind of water stress, potentially, if you have to irrigate for crops and practical things like that. And so understanding how these past variations have impacted plants, things like grasses, um, actually is quite useful as we start to try to make projections toward the future. Okay, so, um, Kira, can I have the next slide, please? Okay. All right, well, so those of you who have it in front of you, um, when we think about climate change, there are two different ways primarily that climate can change. Yep. So the first one is we can increase the mean of climate. So if you imagine that we've just got a bell curve, we're living, we're living in Columbus, Ohio, so it's hot during the summer, cold during the, the winter, we could just take that bell curve and move it to the right. So things could just get warmer. And so if we do that, that means we have a hotter summer and a warmer winter. Okay? But we just made everything a bit warmer. Um, a different possibility, though, is that we actually don't change the mean state of the climate and that we actually change instead how variable the climate is. So instead of 
having things necessarily change a lot in terms of the median of temperature, we make winter arrive much, much earlier or much later. Or in the case of this year, and again, we don't want to conflate weather and climate, but the weather this year, which is part of the long-term climate trend, is that you know, winter is ending earlier. Those of you who are long-term residents know this. Winter is ending earlier. Okay, and so that would be an example where the variance changed. Okay, so, yeah, go ahead. So, um, depends what kind of storms we're talking about. Um, hurricanes, for example, probably won't become more frequent, but they'll become stronger and potentially more damaging. Um, tornadoes, something a little more relevant for us here, probably will both become more frequent and, and uh, a little bit nastier. Uh, it's a weather phenomenon. So, yeah, it's weather rather than climate. But because of the climate change, the, the frequency of those extreme weather events will change as well. Um, okay, so the first one, not so hard to predict. Things get warmer everywhere. Second one, okay, maybe we can predict that. The scary one is the third scenario, right? It's where the mean state changes, but the variance also changes, okay? This is what we're observing, Okay? This is what's actually happening if we just go and take thermometers and measure, and measure how climate's changing. We're seeing greater variability. Again, those of you who, you know, just think about the last five winters, right? We've had a couple of snow-free, you know, white, white, well, we've had a couple of white Christmases and we've had a couple not-so-white Christmases just in the last few years. So that's that variance. So we can see that we're slowly stepping things up toward warmer conditions, but simultaneously we're getting these bigger and bigger swings. So if you're a farmer... This makes it a lot harder to predict when you put your crop in the ground, right? Just from a totally practical standpoint, when do you put it in? This year, do you, do you try to get an extra harvest in because the snow seems gone? What happens if it snows in two weeks and you wipe out that first bit of stuff that you've done, right? So this has, this has impacts on stuff like that. Okay, so if we could look at the, the last one. And so, relatively speaking, physical processes are easier to predict than chemical or biological processes. Um, we can, I can tell you with great confidence how bright the sun was four billion years ago because we know something about how the sun has evolved and we know something about the temperature. And it's actually, it's, my, my undergraduates solve this as a problem, a homework problem all the time, okay? But it's much harder to predict what happens as soon as you involve the biosphere. And don't worry about the details of what's on here. The only thing I want you to see is that there are places on here that have things that are in a white color or kind of a brown color, those are more of the physical processes. And anything that's green up there is where biology becomes important. And so what you notice pretty quickly is if you look at a, what's actually still a fairly simplified carbon cycle, the green parts are in there in all sorts of places. So one of the observations that we can make is that the rate that we are putting CO2 into the atmosphere is actually, in terms of emissions, is actually about double the rate that it's accumulating at. So where's that missing 50% of the carbon? Well, it turns out, of the 50% extra, about half of it goes into the ocean, and about half of it goes into forests. But if you think about a tree, can they just forever grow larger and larger and larger and larger? Right? We've all seen you know, redwoods and things like that. They're enormous. Has anyone ever seen a tree that size here in Michigan? Right? You haven't. So different species have different limits to how much carbon they could actually uptake. And the question that um, we can address if we look back at the geologic past is, how close are we to that limit? I mean, can we just keep emitting and, and count on forests to kind of bail us out, count on the ocean to bail us out, or bail us out 50%, which is what it's doing today? 
Um, and the answer probably is no. Okay. So one of Chris was talking about the PETM earlier. This this very very warm rapid climate event. So one of the, my former students, Jennifer Cotton, um, did this really nice study where she looked at the inorganic so carbon that was going into limestone rocks like that, and organic carbon, so the stuff that was going into roots, plants, dead uh, organism pieces, basically, and looked at how the two of those things changed. And so if the climate system could keep up with that, they should change in lockstep, right? The inorganic and the organic should do exactly the same thing, right? They should just go like this up and down. That's not what happens. Instead, we see a much larger change in the living parts of the system. And the living parts of the system couldn't keep up with that rapid climate change. And in fact, soils actually started re-respiring the carbon that was stored in them. So we think of soils as storing carbon today. Instead, they became net sources of carbon, sending it out to, in, into the atmosphere. Okay? So where are we most worried about this happening going forward? Um, the place where this is most likely going to be the largest issue is up in the Arctic because there's a lot of carbon buried. And there are lots of people at University of Michigan who are studying this. Um, Adriana's right there. I'm going I'm to embarrass her for a second. This is a graduate student who's working on this problem, among other things. Um, but the rate, the rate of warming there means that a lot of these things that have been sinks for carbon are changing over to being sources. And so here's the scary part about that distribution. Yeah, go ahead. Yes, yes, absolutely. So the question was about the taiga. And so the, the taiga and, and the permafrost areas um, in Siberia and other places in Canada are starting to melt. Okay? Um, and so, let's see, where was I going with this? Um, so, the, so the temperature changed, though. We talked about that there, there could be differences in terms of seasonality. There could be differences in terms of variance in climate. But if we come back to this idea that there will also be winners and losers, we can look at what the rate of climate change is at different latitudes. Let me just finish the thought and I'll get your question. Um, and it turns out that the fastest rate of change is at the high latitudes. So these areas that are most vulnerable in terms of releasing carbon back to the atmosphere are the areas where the temperature is changing the fastest. It's where it's warming up the fastest. Okay? Um, and so... You know, in terms of how we can use the past to look at the future, um, a lot of what I've talked about so far, these are things when we've worked on relatively longer timescales or on these events like what Chris is talking about. One of my current students, though, is trying to actually just look at this period of industrialization. So this is the last thing I'll leave you with. So she's gone back. Um, we had this idea, which was, you know, how do we know what's happening with things like forests in places like Michigan when we didn't have people living everywhere? Right? We have some survey maps. We know when people clear-cut stuff, but we don't actually know the details of what's on the ground. And it turns out, especially in the early days of the state, people were running all over the place. They were doing surveys. When um, Michigan and Ohio uh, did not fight a war over Toledo, they thought about fighting a war over Toledo, um, the compromise was that Ohio got Toledo and Michigan got the Upper Peninsula. And that turned out to be one of the best deals that's ever been made for the state of Michigan, right? It's where most of the, most of the I, mean, I mean, that's not a knock on Toledo. Um, <laughs> but it turns out that most of our mineral resources are on the Upper Peninsula. This is where the copper comes from. This is where the iron comes from. Um, but it also means that we then had to explore all this new territory before Michigan turned into be, uh, to be a state. And so a lot of these explorers were trying to figure out what plants were there. And they did something very helpful for us. They went and they grabbed leaves all over the place. 
And so by going to these historic leaf collections from herbaria, so places where, where we store leaves, we're actually able to look at how carbon is being taken up by the forest over the last 150 years. And so we can then look at which part of that change is due to the burning of fossil fuels. We know how much has been burned. We know how that should have changed values of plants versus how much of that is also changing as a result of climate change. And this is all stuff in progress, but the short answer is it looks like the Upper Peninsula has gotten drier throughout this time too. So again, it's not just the CO2 change. It's not just that physical atmospheric change. There's also a local climatic change that we can see recorded in these things. So a lot of our work going forward is going to be starting to compress this time scale to really focus on more recent climate change, even as we're still interested in these earlier events. Okay, I'll leave it at that. And come back here. Thank you very much to our two speakers. We're going to take a break right now. There are some discussion questions on the table. Um, there are some experts among you, and, there, and our speakers will be circulating. So please take a break, discuss what you heard. We'll come back to a group discussion shortly. Okay. So it's actually really difficult to interrupt all the great conversations that are happening. But I need to do that because I, I would like us to have a conversation as a group. Um, and so, so we're going to try to do that. Um, so uh, this is the group discussion portion of the evening. I've agreed to moderate. So I'll let you know if you have the floor and when you don't. Um, yeah. So I'm going to be running around with this cordless mic. I'm going to ask you to use the microphone so that um, we can record, because Lisa's in the back recording for a podcast later, and also so that those with hearing impairments can hear. So please use the microphone. Um, please look at me to be recognized, even though I'm not an expert in climatology, okay? But I, I do have the microphone. Um, <laughs> um, if you could, limit your questions or comments to 30 seconds to a minute so that lots of people can participate. I may interrupt you if you go on forever. Um, likewise, I'm going to try to give preference to those who haven't spoken yet, just so that we hear a diversity of voices. That's important. And uh, there's, uh, there's a lot of expertise in the room. Um, so I always hope this part is more like a group discussion and less just like a a question and answer. Of course, our speakers are happy to answer your questions, but there may be other comments uh, and thoughts that you wish to address to the group. Feel free to do so. Um, this part, we, we always like to foster open discussion and honest de debate, um, even as we address topics that may be tense or uncomfortable. Um, it's also important that we protect each other's safety just so that we all feel good about being here at Science Cafe and drinking beer together. So please be nice to each other or else. Um, okay. We clear on that? Um, finally, if, if you could um, turn off your cell phone, um, make it not ring during this portion of the program. If you do forget to do that, um, we'll tell you what would happen if every human on the planet had your personal carbon footprint. So we might do that anyway. Um, <laughs> okay, every, does anybody want to start us off? 
this is a question directed towards Chris, I think. Uh, in discussions I've had with climate skeptics, they have pointed out, or at least uh, maintained, that in past eras, temperature rise has preceded CO2 rise. Uh, now, I understand maybe now it's, you can't tell which way it is, but I'm wondering what is the latest feeling about that? So the answer is that the last time that I looked, which isn't recent, is that they actually track very, very closely. That that was an issue about now maybe a decade, maybe not quite a decade. There was some issue about that, and then it was resolved by better temperature and CO2 records. So I, I think they, they essentially track each other very, very uh, closely. Is that to be expected? That is to be expected. As the CO2 rises, you would expect uh, temperature to track almost immediately, yeah. In all the years since its creation, I assume the Earth has been receiving energy from the sun. Has that been collecting and in some way having any effect on this whole situation? So it's interesting because if you think about Earth's energy balance, what happens is the um, energy comes in, it heats up the Earth, and then energy is emitted in, in terms of uh, long-wave radiation. So there's not really any... On long timescales, there's no storage of energy. I mean, we store some energy in the ocean and on land and in the atmosphere, but there isn't a long-term geological sink of solar energy. Um, I don't believe your argument. Okay? Uh, you've talked about two variables, temperature and carbon dioxide. They are related. That's what you've shown. What is the driver? What is the cause? You could say maybe there's a cause of decrease in temperature. Say cooling of the earth. Okay. Or the cause is carbon dioxide. But what, what caused the carbon dioxide to decrease during that geological time? What is the driver of the process? That's what we're, that's, that's what we're interested in today. So, um, can you be more specific and tell me what time period you're talking about? You're talking about the last 100 million years? I'm talking about the last um, 100 million years, yes, right. Okay, so 100 million years. Um, the source of that carbon dioxide in the Cretaceous is thought mainly to be through volcanism. And so there's more active volcanism outgassing carbon dioxide concentrations. So that caused the, the levels of carbon dioxide to be higher. Okay. Over the long term, and this happens on very long timescales, not relevant to the situation we're in now, Carbon dioxide is taken out of the system by weathering of silicate rocks, which are like granites, or through the growth of plants and then the burial of those plants. Those are the long-term sinks of carbon dioxide. I don't want to give you the impression that that is going to help us today because those are very, very slow sinks. So that long-term um, sink is thought to be due to those processes. Yeah, and, and so, so what you're really looking at throughout that, that long, long time scale is it's the balance between the sources and the sinks. So if the sources are larger than the sinks, CO2 goes up, things get warmer. If the sinks are larger than the sources, things get cooler and CO2 levels go down. And so what I, when I was talking about over the period of industrialization, that we can, the observation we can make is that the sink for carbon is only about half as large as the source that we're putting in the atmosphere. Now, you could spin that positively. You can say emissions, it could be worse. 
Right? It's great that the oceans and forests are taking up some of this carbon, but the sink is not keeping up with the source, and so we're getting a net long-term increase in the amount of CO2 and a net long-term increase in temperature. And the other point to add to that is that the amount of CO2 that the ocean can uptake decreases through time. So actually, its, it's um, use as a source is decreasing, so it makes the matter even worse. Is, isn't the, at the end of that period of 100,000 years, or about 40,000 years, where a comet hit in the Caribbean and uh, uh, the emissions of CO2 dealt with the uh, extermination, extermination of dinosaurs? A meteor impact to the Cretaceous tertiary boundary at about 65 million years ago that's thought to cause the extinction, extinction of the dinosaurs. But um, I don't think that had a big CO2 effect. So the, um, until very recently, uh, the processes have been driven by things having nothing to do with man, and then you have processes after man becomes an issue. And is calibration of the model sort of – so when you're trying to explain past data and you're using – does it make sense to use the same models, or are you confident that the same processes are going on and that you can capture the things post-introduction of man that you could prior? That's a great question. Um, and the answer is yes, because of the way we use the models in the sense that uh, if we want to look at a time period in the past with higher CO2, we specify that it has higher CO2. So we, do, we don't have um, man's activities specifically in the model. We would, we would hard code in or specify the carbon dioxide concentrations. But but the direction your question go, is going is, is a good one. I mean, can we use these models in a period of human interference for the past? And um, there are some things that we have to, to change in the, in the models to, to use them for the past. Um, and you, I mean, some of them are obvious, like the continents change, the vegetation changes, and things like that. So we do have to consider those. But other things, like today, there are aerosol fluxes from humans. Um, from fossil fuel combustion and stuff like that. Well, when we simulate past climates, we have to make sure that we take those out of the model so that we don't have that human influence. Your uh, value of CO2 over 400 now reminds me of Bill McKibben's uh, 350.org effort, and I'm wondering if that uh, 350 um, is, uh, is kind of a reasonable. you got some information from paleoclimate that... Uh, indicates that that is it's still a, a reasonable target? You know, it, it's, it's a reasonable target um, in 1990. Um, if, we're, if, we're, if we're being honest about it, um, the time when we really needed to start acting was a while ago. And we've had a whole bunch of governments and a whole bunch of countries have basically just continued to kick the can down the road. Um, at the time that it was declared that we were going to aim for two degrees of temperature change, we'd already had one degree, a bit over a degree, 1.1 degrees. And if you did nothing, if you cut emissions down to 1990 levels on that day, the oceans would still have continued to warm up for about 400 years afterward. Because the heat capacity of water is really different than the heat capacity of air. And we've already added enough, uh, enough heat to the oceans that warming is going to continue regardless of what we do. Um, up to a point. But if we all cut our emissions down, we got ourselves down to 1990 levels, or better yet, 1960 levels, um, 
we would see an effect, but we're still looking at, you know, that would be probably 100 years to see us get back down to 350 again. So it was, it was a good goal, just as two degrees was a good goal, but um, without political will, without people um, voting in ways that will impact these things, I mean, we're, we shouldn't be too political in a setting like this, but it's very unlikely. Let's just say it's... Okay. It's, it's, ex, it's extremely unlikely that we're going to honor our commitments in the Paris Accords. Right? It's extremely unlikely, and that, that was too, in many ways that was too little too late, and we're not even going to do that. Right? We're, we're not even doing what wasn't really a good enough solution. Um, and so you know, in four to eight years, maybe we'll revisit the issue, but that's just kicking the can down the road for four to eight more years. It's a great goal. We have to aim somewhere. We might as well shoot for 350. We're not going to attain it. But we, we have to have serious goals. So I'm over here on your right. I think my question is uh, how reliable are the projections for what the future might hold? Um, I have been told by physicist friends of mine that the place where one might be skeptical concerns the rate constants uh, that have to do with feedback cycles in the prediction of the consequences of the rise in temperature that it could be if you diddle the rate constants that that will predict a, a less, either a less or a much greater uh, consequence uh, and, and how, how quickly will this happen and how extreme will it be. So from a, if that's true, then from a policy point of view, you could decide whether to be, to err on the side of, of not doing too much or not doing too little. And so I, I guess I would ask the experts whether what I've been told that there really is uncertainty uh, in these aspects of the modeling or not. So, so there are no hard-coded rate constants in these models, but, but the sense of your question is true. I mean, are the, are the feedbacks um, robust enough? Are they too strong? Are they too weak? And so that's a fantastic question. And so the way we, so how do we test that? And so one way to test that is, is to uh, have a, a climate model and set it up for the pre-industrial time period, and then run it up to the present day and say, hey, how does it do? Do we simulate the present day climate fairly well? And the answer is, we do. We do a fantastic job of that. So then we say, okay, well, then let's um, take that same model, now that we think that it does pretty well for the modern, and let's do it into the future. Let's simulate into the future. How do we know that that climate is accurate? And that's where I would argue that paleoclimate can provide some answers because we can um, simulate these past time periods and, or try to and say, how do we do? We can do the reverse problem. We can say, okay, well, the last glacial was only 18,000 years ago. What if we reduce the CO2 concentrations? Can we simulate the last glacial maximum? And so that's what paleoclimatologists do as well. The, the answer is that the models do, to first order, they do a good job. For warm climates, if anything, they seem to be, they don't seem to have enough feedback because they seem to be too insensitive. So the response is actually more muted than we would want. So if paleoclimate tells us anything, it's that the models are too conservative, not too responsive. But that's a fabulous question. Just add one quick comment to that. So most of you will have heard, so the IPCC report actually looks at an ensemble of models. And the models there project for each doubling of CO2 between about 2 and 4 degrees of warming. 
when we actually look at paleo records, the sensitivity is not two degrees. It's actually four or even five degrees. So the work that we've done in a lot of these warm climate states shows that if, if you double climate, you actually get about four and a half to five degrees. So as Chris is saying, if anything, the models are underestimating what's happening. And one of the reasons why they underestimate it is that our focus is on CO2. And CO2 is, is critical. It's about two-thirds of the greenhouse effect that isn't due to water vapor. But there are other greenhouse gases, too. There are nitrogen greenhouse gases, and there's methane. So methane is also increasing due to industrial activity. And methane is about 25 times stronger greenhouse gas than CO2. And so we know in the past when methane levels were higher, we actually see this increased sensitivity of climate when we get these, these more like five degrees per doubling of CO2. A couple of observations uh, that need verification. The first is that the solar energy input um, is re-radiated on a very different uh, frequency distribution going back out so that uh, it doesn't all go back out. Uh, it gets reflected because of that difference in frequency distribution gets reflected more by the atmosphere uh, and comes back again and, and actually cycles. The other thing is that uh, the, uh, if the current um, increase in acidification of our oceans, the excess increase of acidification of our oceans were to, uh, re were to be an uh, increase in, uh, oh, and the increase in temperature and, uh, of our oceans um, were to be transferred to our atmosphere, um, we would now have uh, a current atmosphere of 140 degrees Celsius worldwide. I don't think I can address your second um, point, but I can your first one. And um, what you described was the greenhouse effect. So solar energy comes in as shortwave radiation. It heats up the Earth. The Earth is not as hot as the sun, and so it re-radiates, but it re-radiates at a longer wavelength, and that's called long-wave radiation. And that long-wave radiation can interact with greenhouse gases, which then absorb it and re-emit it. And some of that goes back to the surface, which then heats the surface. So that's the greenhouse effect. It heats the surface, so then the Earth radiates out more energy. And so it continues the cycle until there's a, a balance. So there's no net storage of energy, but that is you know, it was a great description of the greenhouse effect. You continue to increase um, the Earth's temperature until you have a balance between the incoming and the outcoming, outgoing. Um, and I'm not sure how to answer the second. Well, one thing we can say to the second one is, I mean, if you have no greenhouse gases at all, the temperature of the Earth would be substantially colder. So the, greenhouse, the, the total greenhouse effect um, is on the order of about 40 degrees. So if you look at the global surface average temperature today, it's about 15 Celsius. That's 59 Fahrenheit. Um, and so if you subtract 40 degrees from that, that's not very pleasant. It's not unlivable, right? but it's pretty unpleasant. And so a certain amount of greenhouse effect is what makes the planet habitable. Um, but the largest part of that actually comes from water vapor. And the amount of water vapor isn't really changing. And so it's these other greenhouse gases that are the levers that are actually moving the climate warmer or colder. Because the amount of water vapor is basically constant. To indicate how much um, carbon dioxide was being absorbed by our oceans... 
It's immense. I mean, we can put some numbers on it. The deep ocean has about 40,000 gigatons of carbon. It's almost an inconceivably large number. Um, all of the plants and soils on Earth have about 1,500. Okay? So the amount of carbon that is in the ocean, if you, did, if you did release all the carbon out of the ocean, absolutely, we'd live on a totally different planet. Um, but on the other hand, it's, it, biology is the big feedback here, right? It's, it's the plants, it's marine productivity that actually is part of the balance. And the, the issue with human-induced climate change is throwing it out of that natural balance, where the, the sources and the sinks are two different sizes now. Um, I'm an American. I like easy answers. If you look at the date between John Glenn and Neil Armstrong, that was seven years. In seven years, we went from the first man in space to a man on the moon. If we took the $21 million from the Mexican wall, and if money is no object, can, is there a mechanical answer? Can, we, can, with American ingenuity, create a sink, a, some type of machine that we can put in the middle of the desert that will at least uh, modulate the problem? Uh, there are a number of answers to that question. The simple answer is no. Um, <laughs> The, um, the second answer is there's a very, very simple solution that I think will solve this all, and it's called a carbon tax. And once you start um, charging carbon use um, based on the amount that it actually costs us, we will no longer use fossil fuels because other sources of energy will be just as cost-effective. The third answer is one that I don't... I, I, I kind of have a moral... Um, dislike of, and that is geoengineering. And um, there, are, there are ways that we can cool the climate through geoengineering, but, um, you know, it was geoengineering that got us into this mess, so it's uh, questionable as to whether we want to try geoengineering to get us out of this mess. But, um, so I, I, right now I'm a very strong advocate of a carbon tax. I, I just, I think it's, it's the solution for us. This question is for either speaker or both. Uh, what has it meant to you personally to do your research? That's a good question. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll tell a story to, to get around to it. So um, when I was in high school um, in Minnesota, in Minnesota you can take classes at the University of Minnesota. And um, so I thought, this is great. I'm going to go take physics. Physics is, you know, it's the king of sciences. Um, so I'm going I'm to go do physics. And it turns out if you register as a high school student, um, you register dead last behind every single other group of students. So by the time it came around to me being able to register, there were two physical science classes that I could take. Um, the first one was Intro to Earth Sciences, and the second one uh, was Intro to Bovine Reproductive Science. <laughs> so armed with that choice... Um, I went to start learning about, uh, about geology. And so I did a couple of those courses as a high school student. And then when I went to, as an undergraduate, I, I, I was going to be pre-law. I was, I was planning to go, you know, sue my way into success. But, 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 but on the environmental side, let's be, let's be clear. Um, but as soon as I started looking at where the problems were, I, I realized that we, we didn't know a lot of the answers you know, and that, and that we, we had uncertainty in a lot of what we were doing. And so part of what 
shifted me toward thinking about looking at the science side, but still simultaneously trying to talk to policymakers and to talk to people who um, are you know, stakeholders and all these things, was just realizing that we didn't know the science as well as, as we could. And at this point, honestly, we know the science really well. Okay? But scientists are not great communicators. Um, if we were, we might have had a different election result. Right? We, might, we might not be looking at this, at this defunding of the EPA. Some of you, lots of, lots of you are old enough to remember what the world was like before the EPA. The Cuyahoga River was on fire. Okay? This, I mean, so, so maybe you don't like all regulation, but my gosh, who wants a flaming river? <laughs> right? And so, and so what, what drove me into science was really the link between, of getting into thinking about these environmental things. And so... The, the things I've worked on have always had a mixture of what's happening in the modern, the future, and what was happening in the past. And so I've, I've, I've been lucky enough to have an opportunity to mix those two things together. Uh, <laughs> um, recently I read of, uh, uh, cursorily a... Um, a uh, uh, summary of a publication, a, a journal, uh, that said that uh, there's a paper that says, you know, that we're in danger of uh, Earth being uninhabitable within 10 years because of a variety of uh, dread feedback loops. Um, and I don't know if you're aware of that paper or not. Um, and I wish I could speak with more specificity about it. Maybe you can. And what would you say about it? Thanks. I don't think either one of us are aware of that paper, and I think both of us would agree that that's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that, that time scale is not realistic. But, I mean, you know, one of, the thing, one of the value judgments you have to make about climate is what, what are you willing to accept? You know, um, if you... I like hiking. I like canoeing. I like doing things like that. Am I willing to canoe if it's 45 Celsius out? So if it's, if it's well over 100 degrees, that stops being a very pleasant activity. And so, and, you know, but, but there'll be other people who'll say, you know what, my favorite thing is to Netflix and chill. So I don't need to be able to go outside and do these things. So I'm okay with accepting a higher level of climate change. And that's, that's something that, you know, we need to culturally kind of get everybody on, on the same page again. One of the really interesting things historically is that a lot of the environmental legislature was actually passed by that renowned liberal, Richard Nixon. Right? And they were passed by overwhelming majorities. Climate environment used to be a bipartisan issue. It's not a bipartisan issue anymore, but it affects all of us. So it should be a bipartisan issue. Um, this is kind of a follow-up question what John just asked. I have a four-year-old, you have a one-year-old. What are we looking at in 50 years? Is it just going to be a little bit less snow and maybe I don't want to go canoeing in July and I'm going to get my wine from England? Or are we looking at massive problems like what we're seeing in Syria, but it's happening in Texas? That's what scares me. It's not that I'm not going to be able to canoe. It's massive geopolitical unrest based on food supply and water. It's basic human problems. And I think that there's a lot of people out there saying, we're facing this in 50 years. 
Not, not that humans are going to go extinct in 10 years, but that human existence on this planet for many, many, many people in the hotter parts of the globe is going to become really, really hard. So it's, it's not just the hotter parts of the globe. Um, if we melt all of the ice on Greenland, New York City is underwater. Miami is underwater, and there's a little seaway that starts snaking its way up towards St. Louis. Okay, so it so I was being glib before, but it, which was more a question of, of what's acceptable with lifestyle. But yeah, we are we're looking at some pretty fundamental changes. On the other hand, um, if you think about World War II, people grew victory gardens and started producing food at home. If you think about what happened when with the OPEC crisis, people drove less and they demanded more fuel efficient cars. When the global economy went. Uh, very rapidly downhill, we had cash for clunkers. And I mean, when's the last time you saw a Hummer? Right? So the, the real question, I think, as far as moving forward is, you know, can we do it without stick? Can we do it with, like, with carrots? Or is it going to take stick? Is it going to take something catastrophic for people to change their behavior? Or can you start changing behavior proactively? And, you know, it's not going to come from politicians. I'd love to tell you it's going to come from politicians. But Again, regardless of party, they're, they're short, right? You serve for two, four, six years at a go. Um, the largest success in terms of reducing greenhouse gas emissions in the United States is because the state of California decided to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. The city of New York decided to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. The only reason we can even see our Kyoto targets is because those two large groups of people made a choice to forego some carbon emissions in exchange for trying to make it all better. And that's, that's not something that should just be limited to the coasts. Right? That has to happen everywhere. And I think that that's, that's the answer. You know, I mean, we, need, we need people who are more educated, but we also need to be willing to, again, I was being glib, but we need to be willing to think about what, what are the successes or what are, what are the sacrifices that we're willing to make. And a lot of them are not too big. Do you really need a car that, you know, does anyone need a V8 engine in your car? They're fun to drive, right? They're terrible. They're just a fundamentally terrible piece of engineering. Um, does anyone need a Hummer? No, of course not. Riding around you know, the, the, the terribly rutted up streets here in Ann Arbor, sometimes it seems like you need that, right, with our lovely infrastructure. But, but you know, that, and, and I'll pass it to Chris in a second, but that's another good example, infrastructure. How much extra money do we all waste on our cars, and how much lowers our fuel efficiency because our roads suck? Right? The roads here are terrible, 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 terrible. That's an easy thing to fix. And it even creates jobs. Right? So again, these economic solutions can be pretty simple. They can be pretty straightforward. Well, I guess I don't have much to add to that, except that um, where we're at in 50 years is really dependent on CO2 emissions over that 50 years. And if you look at the the International Panel on Climate Change Predictions, you know, they have these different scenarios. They have these, I, w I won't use the, the terminology, well, I will use the terminology. They have RCP 8.5 and RCP 2.5 or whatever. And so those large ranges represent the fact that we don't know how humans are going to respond and, and act and how much emissions there are going to actually be. If it's at 8.5, then we have a real reason to be concerned. And so like... Nathan said, I mean, we have to 
stop emitting as much CO2, and there are numerous ways um, to do that. It's, it's interesting uh, because I've been teaching climate change for a long time. When I started teaching climate change, I, was, I was, would tell my students, well, you know, you should change your light bulbs. You should get new technologies that don't, um, that don't emit as much and more efficient. We're, we're well beyond that, right? I mean, please go change your light bulbs and get the most efficient ones, but uh, we're way beyond that. We, we have to start thinking about um, techniques that, like a carbon tax that, that, have, uh, that make big differences. That's a great place to leave this cafe. Thank you very much for coming. I am, I'm I wish we, there's so many good questions. I know we skipped tonight. I wish we could have heard more. The speakers will be here for a few minutes while we're um, cleaning up. So thank you to the audience and thank you to our wonderful speakers. They did a great job and they were very courageous. Thank you.